0: I'm LZ Granderson, and this is Life Out Loud. It is often said that all politics is local. In Tempe, Arizona, that is particularly true, where there's a stretch of waterfront that I believe is just as important as the Castro or Chelsea or any other historic neighborhood. It's called the Neil G. Giuliano Park, and it's named after the city's first openly gay mayor. Correction, it's named after Arizona's first openly gay elected official. That's not quite right either. It's named after the country's first openly gay man to be elected mayor. And for six years, between 1996 and 2001, Tempe was the largest city in the country with an openly gay mayor. But that's not why the park was named after him. You see, when Neil took office in 1994, there was no park. Or Tempe Performing Arts Center, or Metro Light Rail, for a whole host of other developments that helped transform Tempe's unused land into one of the most attractive stretchers in the region. Neil did all of this while fighting off two recall efforts because he was gay. On this episode of Life Out Loud, we're going to chat with my buddy Neil, along with five other groundbreaking politicians who've had to deal with LGBTQ prejudice while also pushing for policies and improvements like Giuliano Park that benefit everyone. Our first roundtable features a group of folks we like to call the OGs in the game. They include Neil, of course, as well as former Houston mayor Anise Parker, the first openly LGBTQ person elected mayor of a top 10 city, and Keith St. John, who made history by being the first openly gay black person elected to public office in the country. Later on in the show, we'll also speak with three more trailblazers who represent the new school of political leaders, including Richie Torres, Sarah McBride, and Brian Sims. And while their stories are incredible and inspiring, they may not even have been possible without the hard work and accomplishments of my three friends who we're about to speak to right now. I love both of these discussions for a lot of reasons, but high on the list is finding out what Harvey Milk taught Anise and Keith about dog poop. I'm going to start off with Keith When do you recall there being something other than straight or heterosexual in the world?
1: Gee whiz, that's an interesting one that is throwing me for a loop. I certainly can recall, as anyone might, the the wishes that come over us when we fancy someone uh, in terms of how we try to negotiate that courtship. When we're all of 11 years of age or so. Um, so I I had those moments, um, but it was probably not until I realized that there were others near and around me, uh, both in high school and in college, uh, that I realized I was having or developing uh, a physical attraction to. I'd, I'd have to Put it that way, Mayor Parker. I knew I was different, and
2: I had uh, crushes on other girls always growing up. And I actually put a name to it when I was about twelve. I actually heard the word uh, homosexual, and went running to look it up because I was a voracious reader. and And I had my first same sex relationship when I was. 15 so Uh, and it's funny though where i first heard the word was actually in class and a classmate actually in a classroom said something and the teacher shut him down and i thought well that's interesting (laughs) 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 he didn't say anything greater i'm going to use the word homosexual and uh, so i went running to look it up uh like oh that's me okay (laughs) now i have a word for it
3: neil So I can remember the first time I heard the word homosexuality was in a catechism class. And I didn't really even understand that was, I was, this was pre-puberty, but if you wanted to be alone with other men in an intimate way, you were a homosexual. (laughs) That's my first understanding. And my first like attraction was this kid in the neighborhood who was a few years older than me, who had a lime green, bike with a white banana seat and the big sissy bar in the back. And he wore a loose tank top. And I remember looking at him thinking, wow, that is something right there. I don't think I could put a name to it, but I understood that it was different.
0: You know, this is a very um, special day for you, Neil, because it is the day that you were first elected mayor. Correct. When you think about those days, of trying to run while in the closet. And then you compare running for election openly gay. And for those who don't know, Neil was initially elected in the closet and then his sexual orientation became known. And I believe it was two recall attempts. Is that correct, Neil?
3: The one when I first came out in, uh did not get enough signatures and was kiboshed really quickly the one that got enough signatures was after the Supreme Court statement on the Boy Scouts, that decision, and I spoke out about how that didn't seem fair to me. I was already out of the closet for quite a while by then, but they got enough signatures, and that at that time in 2001, and uh, we beat the recall election. But yeah, as I say, it cost my friends and the Victory Fund uh, a, a lot of money, and uh, was quite a quite a thing at the time in 2001.
0: So in 2001, you're you're running for re-election, you're running to fight off this recall that's solely based on your sexual orientation. Was it harder or easier to be in the public eye in the closet, or openly gay? in the, during those times?
3: Well, personally, it was much harder because you're living a double life and you're having to choose words carefully and choose relationships carefully and choose who you hang out with carefully. Uh, but I always knew my journey was gonna take me to being out and being open. Um, but I was also, in the beginning, I was afraid of that and was not sure that I would survive that politically. But it was I knew that I was on that path. And, and honestly, I knew, I knew some folks from the Victory Fund before I was out who were uh, very helpful and very supportive. And I whole, had a whole cadre of friends in Washington, DC, when I was going to Washington as a city council member and my first two years as mayor before I did come out that were supportive and helpful and, and really uh, helped me along that path in ways that I'm eternally grateful for. You know, I'm glad
0: you brought up the Victory Fund. Um, congratulations to the three of you for being part of the inaugural class of the hall of fame for the Victory Institute. Um, it's an incredible achievement and obviously one that is well deserved. I'm curious, uh, for Anise. When you were first running for mayor, you were out. But when you were first running for the city council, were you out then?
2: Oh, yeah. I've been out my entire adult life. I, I was I came out in publicly in college and have <laughs> never looked back. I was a council member for three terms, and then city controller for three terms, then mayor for three terms. But I lost two city council races. And part of the the reason I lost was that Every time I saw my name in print, it was an East Parker gay activist running for city council, like gay was my last name. So it was it was part of my uh, public persona. I was arguably the most visible lesbian activist in Houston when I started running for office. So, but since you mentioned the, the, Victory, the Victory Fund and the Victory Institute, I have to give a little statement because we're the only national organization, we've been around 30 years, but we're the only national organization focused solely on LGBT candidates for public office, both elected and and appointed. And so the hall of fame gave us an opportunity to look back over not just the 30 year history of victory, but the history of LGBTQI individuals running for office in the United States and around the world and trying to pick the really singular moments. And so we have a class of, of 20, you know, milestone, glass ceiling breaking individuals. And I'm, I'm honored to be included and with the two gentlemen on the call with me, uh, Keith and Neil.
0: Absolutely. Keith, when I looked at the documentary out in Albany, um, it seems as if the people who are commenting on these days were really focused in on the fact that you were the first openly gay person elected to um, city council. We had
2: elected Keith uh, St. John. St. John, who was the first openly gay
3: alderman, not only the state, but the country.
0: They didn't really talk a lot about you being Black. Was that something they were cognizant of, how unique that aspect
1: of the conversation was? They may be referring to that sort of intersectionality. Being Black and being gay is not something that many folks are familiar with around here. Being Black, certainly, yes. Being gay... Uh, in, in back then in, in in the political sphere was something that was equally unprecedented. So I think folks uh, by and large never either put the two together or you know, contemplated the implications of uh, both of those sort of statuses being, uh, being in one person. It, it was really that I was gay as, the only thing about which my opponent thought to try to attack. Of course, my opponent was Black. So uh, race really could not have been an issue in my campaign because the incumbent and my opponent uh, and I were of the same race. As you three
0: look at the community, particularly when it comes to leadership, do you think we fully grasp what it means to be inclusive and especially, you know, with intersectionality being very present in our ecosystem?
2: At the leadership level, absolutely. Are we there yet? Not by a long shot.
0: Where are we missing it?
2: I I attended my first LGBT organizing event in 1975. I've been out for a long, I'm not not old enough for Stonewall, but not that far back. And it was overwhelmingly white and male back then. Hasn't changed a whole lot. Still very white, still very male. They, I mean, a lot of, of great feminists that I've worked with and a lot of folks in the movement and in the leadership universally across the movement, understands the importance of diversity and intersectionality and different life experiences but it doesn't it's not yet reflected visibly and consistently
3: yeah i would agree with that i think that's 100 accurate and i think we still find uh that we're becoming more diverse even every year there's there's more diversity in the issues that we're talking about and there's more intersectionality of those issues that we're talking about and yet each of those has a constituency that needs to be brought along. And in, in that regard, that's an ongoing challenge. You know, I think it has gotten better. Uh, certainly for those of us who were in office before the internet and before social media, um, it's easier now to initiate. It's not necessarily easier to deliver on, on that goal. Speaking of
0: goals, when the three of you look back on your time in office, what particular piece of legislation or policy are you most proud of? And it doesn't have to be LGBTQ specific. I'm just curious as to, as you think about your legacy as an elected official, what do you consider to be the crown jewels?
1: I I got elected not as a single issue uh, candidate. Uh, but as a candidate who needed to and frankly understood the importance of uh, really reacting and responding to issues that mattered the most to my constituents. <laughs> you know. And so we former city officials know how incredibly important not only the uh, tax base is, but also the sidewalk in front of my next door neighbor's house and making sure that the dog poop is picked up from in front of my neighbor's house, because of course, you know, all politics is local and folks at the local level, if not every level of government care most about themselves. And what I think I'm most proud of is the process that I would like to believe I opened up to make the doling out of federal monies through the community development block grant process, uh, to really open it up to public scrutiny and have it be more transparent.
0: Mayors?
3: I want to hear from the, the mayor of the gigantic city in Texas first. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I came in with a list of things that I wanted to work on. And it's it's funny, the, the Houston Chronicle, our local daily, published an, an op-ed and it was caricature of me and I'm wheeling in a dolly and it was the gay agenda and it was parks and green space and it was uh, repairs of water sewer lines and road repairs and I came in with a list and I started knocking them off and I very consciously during the campaign uh, expressed that while I cared deeply about the issue that my first priority was not going to be to come in and and pass a non-discrimination ordinance. I you know I didn't run to be the a symbol I ran to be the mayor of Houston and and to focus on the issues and I also was laughing when, when Keith said picking up the dog poop as a council member I passed the pooper scooper ordinance for the city
0: of Houston <laughs> You buried the lead there I stole
2: that from Harvey Milk What? That was one of the things that he did in San Francisco. He was part Harvey Milk yeah. passed the dog poop ordinance for San Francisco, and I, I absolutely <laughs> stole that. This is, this is granular politics. It may be just the day before San Francisco's dog litter ordinance goes into effect, but for the city's dogs, it was business as usual.
1: I don't want to put anybody in jail. I don't want to find anybody. I just want to clean up the mess.
0: I'll be sure to let Destin Lands Black know that he missed some yes. things in the script for milk and needed to focus more on dog poop. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes. That's what matters. Retail politics 101.
3: Yeah, well, I can tell you from living in San Francisco for five years, I don't think they enforce it very much. (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole whole other podcast. Uh, You know, so for me, LZ, um, when I was first elected and still in the closet, one of the things I had said when I was running was that the city of Tempe needed this thing called a human relations commission, mm. Mm. and you'd have thought I was, you know, proposing something that was, uh, you know, close to socialism for some folks, because uh, and the reason I did that was because we had had a, a young Asian student who had been knocked off her bicycle, and people said it was a, I don't even, you know, it wasn't even uh, hate crime wasn't even a term then, but but it was an attack on her for being Asian. And someone called me as the council member and said you need to sit down with people in the asian community and i had no idea who to talk to in tempe from the asian community i didn't have any great contacts with people who were leaders in the asian community in tempe at the time so i wanted this human relations commission and then it was folks from around the country who taught me that all of the ordinances that were going on with regard to sexual orientation uh, and to some extent, gender identity, but then it was purely sexual orientation for the most part, were coming up through the communities that had human relations commissions, where people from different views and different backgrounds were being called together to talk about issues. And, and so we got one of those, and through over a period of a couple of years, they rent- recommended a uh, an inclusive ordinance for city employees, um, which we passed. But sadly, at the time, I couldn't get the fourth vote to include transgender people. And so it was, a, it was controversial because we approved an LGB inclusive ordinance for non-discrimination of city employees, but we did not include transgender people. Now, a few years later, when we added transgender to that, not a single person even testified uh, when it was before the council. It was a total non-issue and it just got added
0: you know, many of us in the community are very proud of not just the effort of Secretary Pete Buttigieg, but the fact that he actually made a dent in the actual election itself, in the primary itself. And I'm I'm curious as to, for the three of you, you know, how do you think the nation handled his candidacy? And do you believe we're close to having an open LGBT person be on that ticket?
2: I'm going to say that I really like Pete Buttigieg. I overlapped with him a little bit. He's an absolutely brilliant guy and with with excellent political instincts. Pete Buttigieg with 10 years more political experience or a little bit of state experience uh, would have mowed down that field. He's that good and has that much potential. And I think really, I think he moved the ball and he moved the conversation. And we're on the cusp of uh, of being able to elect uh, someone from the LGBTQ community, but it is a that's a very it's a, it's a very high bar and a, a a steep climb to get there.
1: I'd like to believe that as we and others like Mayor Pete have shown and demonstrated, we are not, despite our backgrounds, limited by our backgrounds. Um, we're not necessarily defined, certainly our outlook is not circumscribed by our personality or our you know, sexual orientation or identity. And I'd like to believe uh, that we have uh, demonstrated to the public that we have the ability, and I think we've been able to prove very potently that gays and lesbians, transgender, whomever uh, we are and whatever we call ourselves are not, uh, you know, to be pigeonholed, to not to be um, boxed into a corner and uh, dismissed out of hand, uh, that we have uh, something to offer. And in fact, our uniqueness only enriches uh, the value of the services that we provide to our constituents and and the, the people at large
3: yeah my my sense on this uh, lz is the culture leads what will then change the changes that will happen later and I view uh, all of the the tremendous activities in communities across the country of the now nine hundred or so openly LGBTq elected officials as whether you whether you want to acknowledge it or not, you are a part of changing the culture by living authentically and being out while you're doing the job you were elected to. But most of that is is cruise ship moving. The culture does not really change very, very fast. But every once in a while, on all sorts of issues in society, you get a speedboat that alters the trajectory of the culture. And I, I think our friend Pete, Secretary Pete, Mayor Pete, uh, is a speedboat moment with regard to helping the culture evolve in society because of his visibility, because of his smarts, because of all the things that An- Anis already identified and of who he is and, and how he conducts himself.
2: I think we should, it's worth noting too that uh, Pete Buttigieg is not the first uh, presidential candidate on a major party ticket that would have been uh, eight years earlier with, with Fred Karger.
3: I'm fighting for millions of people around this country who are members of my community and so many others who are deemed second-class citizens. Um, we will no longer accept that classification.
2: He ran uh, as a Republican in the Republican primary in Obama's reelect, and I would Fred would not like me to say this, but I would I would characterize him as more of an insurgent candidate. He did qualify uh, for the for the ballot in in a state or two, but um, the Republican Party stiff armed him and and locked the door, literally locked the doors to conventions on him. But you need you need someone pushing that wave forward.
0: Absolutely, Neil. I wanted to go back to the conversation regarding your recall because when you share with me about the ally that really stepped in to help you defeat that recall effort, I was really floored, but um, Senator John McCain was an ally for you and stood up to the homophobia that was happening in Arizona at that time. And I would love for you to talk a little bit more about what that was like having Senator McCain by your side during that time. And for the other two, I'm just curious as to, If you can recall unexpected help from an unexpected source, similar to Senator McCain stepping in and helping Mm -hmm. out Neil.
3: Well, I had known Senator McCain since he had run for Congress the first time in 1982 was when I was student body president at Arizona State University and uh, and hosted a little meet the candidates thing on campus for students. And I can tell you when he showed up in that room and started working the room, it was obvious he was going to win over a sitting state senator, a sitting state rep, and a very popular business person in the four-way primary. And he did win. So when I first came out in 1996, two years into my 10 as mayor, uh, it was John and his staff and and sort of his operation that put the kibosh on it uh, among the religious right and other people in the Republican Party at the time and and said... uh, you're leaving him alone. He's my friend. You're not doing this. And Cindy did actually a, a robo call for me and, uh, we defeated the recall with, with Senator McCain and Cindy's help and a lot of others as well. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, John has always, was always very personally supportive of me and other LGBT people. His, one of his chiefs of staff during his Senate tenure was an openly gay man. And we never got to where we could move him on policy. on on some of our issues for LGBT community, but personally, he was always very supportive and uh, and very helpful whenever we needed it.
0: Anise, who was your unexpected ally?
2: So as um, mayor of Houston, uh, my two most famous constituents were uh, George and Barbara Bush. And Barbara Bush actually endorsed me in my run for mayor. I mean, Houston's a Democratic Overwhelmingly Democratic city, so you had three viable Democrats <laughs> running running for mayor, and uh, I was really pleased and 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 surprised to have our support, public support in the race. Uh, uh, Forty one didn't get involved in local politics, but uh, Mrs. Bush was uh, absolutely a, a, a jewel. But they were both great to work with, and they were easy to call upon. But but. Her endorsing me for mayor is still uh, something that a little surprises me a little bit when I think back.
1: Keith? I would have to consider, frankly, not so much a single person as being you know, the biggest surprise in terms of uh, support. I would have to say that it was the very organization against which some would say I ran in the first place. The night before the primary election throughout my district, were dropped these flyers that uh, depicted me as some fairy uh, on The Wizard of Oz with literally red glistening shoes, slippers of some sort, depicted me as someone who only cared about that quote-unquote gay agenda. And that's what I would bring to City Hall and, and, and care about nothing else. And it was about a year that I spent really cultivating a relationship with my colleagues so that in the end, the folks who viewed me as a threat, an opponent, an insurgent, someone who could not be trusted, and then, oh my gosh, someone who's gay, you know, we don't even know what what that, the ramifications of what that means. So I, I would like to give credit to the political leaders in Albany that um, were patient enough, perhaps I'll give them that much credit, to understand that there was more to me than met the eye. And having uh, been able to benefit from some time spent with them, turning them from my enemies and my opponents to my colleagues and my supporters uh, was, I think, a great ambition and and surprise of of a sort.
0: (laughs) 10 years from now, what does it mean for you to live life out loud? And what does it mean for our community to be living life out loud in 10 years? Let's start with the rock star, Mayor Parker.
2: <laughs> well, thank you for, thank you for that. Yeah, I am heartened by what, what I see in the current generations, you know, coming out of high school and into, into, into college. And, and I, have, I have toddler grandchildren. I want the world to be fully open and accepting of them as LGBTQ, and I think we can do that within the next 10 years. Keith?
1: Oh, I would like to hope that the the path that I'm trying to chart for myself for the next 10 years might see at its end greater uh, understanding and appreciation for uh, gay folk, queer folk in the church. Both welcomed as uh, spiritual brothers and sisters, and uh, called to leadership positions. That, that's 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 my perspective and where I'm setting my sights for the next
3: decade. Neil, I am hopeful for the future uh, because I see the young people for whom uh, sexual orientation, gender identity issues are are less of a defining one side or another issue for them, uh, which is fantastic. And yet, I also acknowledge a bit of what Keith is talking about with regard to the need to work in communities of faith. I happen to believe today that the pushback on our visibility and our equality, our quest for full equality and the equality that we already have earned Um, is a bit challenged by the desire of some on the far right to talk of everything with regard to the frame and lens of religious liberty. And you're taking away my ability to practice my religion if you're treated equal in society. And so I think this religious-based discrimination and religious-based defamation over the next decade is an issue we're going to have to contend with.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Though I would say it appears as if this generation of brilliant and courageous politicians still have some work to do, too. You guys aren't done yet, either. Don't put it all on the next generation. I know you very well, Neil. <laughs> okay. I follow your work of knees. Keith, I'm very, very honored to know you as well. I think you guys still got a lot of fight left in you, too. So the young people, they can join you but I don't think you're ready to surrender those reins yet either. Not yet. Not yet.
3: Not yet. Not yet.
0: Thank you three very, very much for your time, your wisdom, your stories,
3: your trust. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. This was fun. Thanks, everyone. Y'all all all take care. Be round.
1: God bless. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author.
4: And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer.
0: And now, we're going to chat with a few of the leaders from the New School of LGBTQ Politicians. Richie Torres from the Bronx, New York, is the first openly gay Afro-Latino elected to Congress. Brian Sims is Pennsylvania's first openly gay state legislator and candidate for lieutenant governor. And my girl, Sarah McBride of Delaware, is the first open transgender state senator. I first met Sarah in 2016 at the DNC when she became the first open transgender person to address a major party convention.
4: Today in America, LGBTQ people are still targeted by hate that lives in both laws and in hearts. But I believe that tomorrow can be different.
0: After her speech, I told colleagues she should run for office. Now, I'm not saying that's why she did it. I'm just saying that's a heck of a coinciding. I am so excited to have you three join us on Life Out Loud. You know, we had a fascinating conversation with three groundbreaking, record-making uh, politicians in Neil Giuliano, Anise Parker, and Keith St. John. You three also represent a huge moment in politics when it comes to the LGBTQ community and. Before we get into what inspired you to run, what it's like to try to govern, et cetera, et cetera, we always start our podcast with this one simple question. And I'm gonna start this one with Sarah. And that is, when was the first time you were aware of something other than cisgender?
4: I remember it well, it's sort of seared into my memory. Um, The first moment where I remember finding out that there were other people like me, that there were transgender people. I was watching a sitcom with my mom. I was about 10 years old. It was about 2000, 2001. And during the course of the sitcom episode, a guest character is introduced and it's revealed during the episode that she's transgender. She was played by Jenny McCarthy. Um, And the joke was that no one else in the show realized she was trans and everyone thought she was beautiful. And I turned to my mom and asked her if this was real, this storyline could happen, and she said, yes. And my heart dropped, because in what could have been a a, a moment of life-affirming and life-changing and life-enhancing knowledge, in reality, it was a moment of deep shame, because I found out that there were other people like me, but I found out that when people us and found us beautiful or attractive that people would laugh and at 10 years old you don't know a lot but you know you don't want to be a joke
1: Mm.
4: and so that is the moment that was seared into my mind and it's a powerful reflection of the importance of affirming nuanced representation in popular culture in business and in politics
0: you were so quick with that story you were very quick with that response which suggests to me that moment when you were 10 is still very present in your mind today, is that true?
4: It's very present only because it was top of mind for me for the next 10 years of my life. Staying in the closet, um, finding out that information, you know, today it's increasingly possible for a trans kid when they see that and find out that there are other people like them, that there's something that they can do about, this fact that they know about themselves, that that could immediately change their life. But for me, it 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 kept me buried deep inside.
0: What about you, Richie? When was the first time you realized there was something other than heterosexual?
6: I suspect the realization came in junior high school. You know, like most people I grew up in a world where there was a presumption of heterosexuality in junior high school, I was uh, I will admit I was a fan of professional wrestling and I had a crush on The Rock. And and at that point, I came to realize oh, he just found out. By the way, <laughs> he just found out. <laughs> uh, happy to report it. Uh, I first came out uh, when I was 16. Um, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood where there were no visible LGBTQ role models, and so I came to discover that a teacher of mine was gay because I came across his profile on my space. I'm dating my sp- myself. Uh, And when I found out that he was gay, I approached him and then spontaneously came out. And so it only took one example of LGBTQ visibility uh, to inspire me to come to terms with my own sexuality.
0: Were you relieved? Were you fearful? Do you remember the emotions as you were talking to this teacher about who you were?
6: It was a spontaneous decision. um, And it was the beginning of a process of coming out that ultimately culminated in my first campaign for the city council. So my coming out process lasted from age 16 to 24. And by age 24, I was fully out. And Brian, you
0: and I have known each other for a long time, but I don't think we've ever talked about this part of our self discovery.
5: I actually, I think the very first time that I I ever thought about anything other than cis and straight was when i was probably 12 or 13 years old my parents who are both retired lieutenant colonels in the army were getting ready for uh, an evening event and i remember going in and you know i was sitting there on my parents bed while my mom was putting her earrings on in and putting her makeup on and she explained to me that they were going to a wedding and she asked my dad to explain why the wedding was so special and their explanation is, is that the, the woman getting married was a nurse and she was marrying a doctor. The nurse worked with my mother at a VA hospital, but that that nurse had been born biologically male and that she had transitioned and become a woman and she was marrying this doctor. And it was just a very special wedding that they were excited to go to. As I reflect back on that, I, I keep thinking, way to go, mom and dad. Way to explain something to a, a, a young kid in the late 80s, maybe b- very beginning of the 90s, that was, uh, that was unusual for the time but not wrong and be able to sort of teach it to me in a way that when I reflected back on it years later as I was coming out, uh, I, I got to know in the back of my mind that my parents would be supportive.
0: When did you learn that everyone wasn't as open as your parents
5: about the conversation? You know, it's something that I began to learn very early on, right, right after that. By the time I was about 14, 15, 16 years old, my mother was always one of the highest ranking women on any army base that I ever, I ever lived on. And so I, I think because I was sort of insulated from the, a degree of sexism, uh, insulated from a, a degree of otherism, I was very aware of the fact that in my own house, equality was the name of the game. But outside of that household, that other, other homes weren't like my own.
0: Um, Richie and Sarah, how did your parents your guardians, the people who are in charge of your care, how did they take the news when you came out to them?
4: You know, I, I had watched my parents embrace my older brother um, when he came out as gay about eight years before I came out as trans without skipping a beat. Um, but I knew that as loving, as inclusive, as forward-thinking and progressive as my parents are and were, that my news would be different because I knew that they didn't have at that point, when I came out, it was Christmas of 2011. Um, totally ruined the holiday. Um, I was
0: gonna say, "Girl,"
4: I mean, you know, it's always a holiday. I feel like you <laughs> we were like, "I've got news." Um, my mom asked; she could tell something was wrong, and I was planning on waiting until after Christmas to come out. But she she came and she asked me what was wrong, and I thought, "Darn, you're asking me, and I have the courage to say it, so I might as well say it." So I, I, I told her, and then she burst into tears and ran upstairs and asked me to tell my dad. Uh, and I told him. And and again, you know, I knew that that my news would be different than my brothers because they had examples of out cisgender gay folks who were happy, healthy, f- fulfilled in their jobs, welcomed in their communities. But they didn't have those examples for trans folks that in 2011 that that they knew of. And I sat with them for probably 10 hours that day, 12 hours the next day, answering every question they had. In many ways, they went through a grieving process. But I also knew that if I walked with them, that ultimately they'd get to a place where my mother would start asking the question that she asked right after I came out of what are the chances that I have a gay son and a transgender child that she would start asking that question not out of self pity, but out of on the diversity of our family, and I'm so glad to say that, as difficult as it was, as many tears uh, that were shed in those first few days, that they both have gotten to that place where they wouldn't trade the diversity of our family, the rainbowness of our family, for anything.
0: I'm curious as to how much of your gender identity and sexual orientation plays into your worldview as you try to govern as opposed to other issues, um, that obviously your constituents are, you know, wanting you to address while also honoring the fact that you guys have made history and there's been no one else like
6: you. We're, we're all the product of, of our identities and lived experiences and the issues that matter most of the South Bronx have a disproportionate impact on LGBTQ people of color. Uh, Whether it's food insecurity or housing insecurity, whether it's poverty or inequality. You know, I represent the South Bronx, which is often said to be the poorest congressional district in America. It's ground zero for racially concentrated poverty. Um, We were hit the earliest and the hardest by COVID 19. And in the South Bronx and elsewhere in New York City, there are up to a million New Yorkers who are in danger of facing eviction from their homes. in the midst of COVID-19. And no community has been more affected by the crisis of housing insecurity and homelessness than the LGBTQ community, particularly LGBTQ youth of color, who are often evicted from their homes at the hands of their own parents, who often face violence and harassment in the shelter system, who often seek refuge in the streets uh, or engage in survival sex,
0: You know, the reason why I asked that question specifically is because I remember the early days of the Obama administration. And while there were a lot of things happening, particularly in response to the economic downfall that we were in the midst of, was hearing people say, but what has he done for black people? Or what has he done for gay people? And so in asking this question, there is a balancing act trying to govern for all, Brian, while also being held
5: accountable by those who put you in office. One of the things that queer people bring to office is our degree of authenticity. And I think it's that authenticity which is also attractive to to potential voters. It's that authenticity which is attractive for people that are looking for quality representation. You know, for me, the idea of divorcing my experiences as a gay man from my thoughts or beliefs on on virtually any other policy um, seemed like it would be a huge mistake. But for the fact that I don't come from any money and but for the fact that I am not heterosexual, I actually carry so many of the privileges that I teach people about and, and, and ask and demand that people use to break down you know, unfair, unjust systems. And so it's, for me, it's critically important to not only be aware of my own marginalization and how that's impacted me, but to make sure that I'm, I'm conscientious of it when I'm making other decisions.
0: You know, Sarah, there's a phrase in the black community, I'm gonna let you in on a little secret, whether or not, you know, you feel like being black today. In other words, you're confronted either in your work or your personal life with a moment that could be a teachable moment because someone or something is, is impacting you because of your skin color, but you have to decide whether or not you wanna take up that fight today. Do you like being trans every day or like, you know what? I just wanna just be, and I don't wanna to have to fight.
4: Yes and no. I mean, I'm human. And so, so there are days where I'm just tired <laughs> of, of, of always being the, the, the go-to trans person in a space. Um, but I'm also mindful that I am the only trans person in a space. And that demonstrates my luck and my privilege. But so too do my privileges surrounding being white and uh, you know, college educated and born into a wealthy family. And the fact that my experience is still so unique and my economic privilege and my educational background shield me from some of the worst discrimination and even violence that the trans community faces, that motivates me even further in my passion for racial justice, for economic justice. My transness is what led me to meet my husband Andy, the most formative relationship in in my life. And the most formative experience in my life being his caregiver during his battle with terminal cancer, which in part motivated me, along with hearing about the challenges facing parents and caregivers in my district, to introduce our state's first paid family and medical leave legislative proposal. But I am mindful that in order to be seen in my full humanity in order to do right by my district and be effective on all of the issues that matter to my constituents. And frankly, in order to do justice by the trans community, I need to be seen in my fullness. I need to be working on all of the issues.
0: Who was your first crush? Richie told us his was The Rock, which, you know, he, he wants to go straight to the mountaintop. He's not even messing around.
5: Uh, Brian, Sarah, who are your first crushes? Um, mine was Atreyu from The NeverEnding Story. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. A leather side satchel on a white horse? I'm sold. (laughs) How old were you? Oh, don't ask me that.
4: (laughs) Sarah? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. My first crush. I am as queer as they come. Um, And I, I, I don't know that I can remember my first crush on a boy. But then my first celebrity crush crush was uh, Hillary Duff and Lizzie McGuire because I'm you know of that age and that was really formative for me.
0: Richie, we know you have to go soon because you have a pending vote um, that requires your presence. I I, I actually have a meeting with The Rock. Oh, all right, (laughs) okay. Someone's using their influence very positively. Um, But before you go, as someone who. You know, represent not just you know the queer community, but also the Black community as well. Obviously, people say a lot about the Black community and homophobia. What has been your experience with that? And do you believe those stereotypes are true?
6: My own lived experience tells me that there's certainly a strain of homophobia in every community, but it is grossly overstated. I ran in the most fiercely contested congressional primary in New York City. I was one of 11 candidates. Uh, The median voter in my district is a senior citizen, mostly Latino and African American. And I was running against the leading homophobe in New York State politics, Ruben Diaz Sr.
3: Ruben Diaz Sr. has a long history of saying hateful things about gay people. Diaz has compared homosexuality to bestiality.
6: And the conventional wisdom held that I had no chance of defeating Ruben Diaz Sr. in a congressional district where the median electorate was at or above the age of 60. And not only did I win, but I defeated Ruben Diaz Sr. so decisively that I sent him into retirement, which is exactly where he belongs. And and I came to realize that the, the median voter in the South Bronx, mostly people of color, saw in me their own child and grandchild, saw in me the embodiment of their own hopes and aspirations for their children and grandchildren. And, and that human connection was far more powerful than homophobia. So I, I would argue that the triumph of an openly LGBTQ congressional candidate over the worst homophobia in New York State politics is a powerful testament to how far we've come. And who would have thought the first LGBTQ member of Congress from New York City, from the birthplace of Stonewall, would come not from the village, not from Chelsea, not from Hell's Kitchen, but from the South Bronx. Beautifully said,
0: beautifully said. Thank you very much for your time and your wisdom. And please tell Dwayne, we all said hello. I will tell The Rock. I will send him your regards. Take care. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Sarah, obviously um, the rash of anti-trans bills, you know, being spread all over the country right now, is emphasizing transgender girls playing sports. What are your thoughts on what's happening with the state legislators around this country as it pertains to these anti-trans bills?
4: I definitely um, did not play uh, any athletics. And if uh, anyone thinks that a trans woman has any competitive advantage over anyone else, all they need to look at is me. Um, I will quickly just prove that theory. <laughs> um, no, but you know, you know these bills That we're seeing right now um, that are targeting uh, really two areas of life. One, they're targeting trans youth's um, access to to school programs, uh, including athletics, and they're targeting trans young people's ability to get medically necessary health care. These bills are part and parcel of the the same attacks we've been seeing now for years against the trans community. Um, There's a through line between the, the, the broader attacks we saw against the trans community uh, years ago to the anti-trans bathroom bill, quote unquote, in North Carolina that passed in 2016, to now these anti-trans uh, bills around sports and, and healthcare, And that is quite simply to make life so difficult for trans people uh, that they can't participate in public life. And especially with these youth, just to be clear, to put a target on their back. For discrimination, um, to put up barriers to them living authentically and being able to get literally medically necessary healthcare, so that their life becomes so difficult that trans youth never grow up to be trans adults. Quite simply, it's that it's that straightforward and it's that dangerous. And at the end of the day, they're le- it's just legislative bullying, uh, plain and simple, and a desire for these right wing politicians to one identify a political boogie person that that whips up their base, and two, to codify discrimination while it is still politically possible, because they know the clock is ticking on that.
0: Uh, Brian, you're in the midst of a campaign yourself. You're running to be lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, Um, a statewide election. What are some of your biggest concerns and and where do you think you can go in terms of how you campaign to ease those concerns
5: i am indeed running a a statewide election right now my first statewide election and pennsylvania is a unique state politically, as uh, I'm sure Sarah can attest. And unfortunately, what the the social and political science tells us is something that I've seen borne out every day I've served in this legislature. And that is that when a party gerrymanders itself into control rather than soften its edges to appeal to the broader base, it 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 really doubles down on on the, the most aggressive parts of its ideology. As a legislator representing the, the sixth largest city in the United States, you know, it is my job to understand about the economic impacts of policies that we're making. But I also want to make sure that, you know, as the lieutenant governor and certainly as a candidate that I am talking daily about why women's and reproductive rights matter so much, why the rights of first and second generation immigrants matter so much, why appropriate taxing matters, what does racism in the criminal justice system look like? You know, the truth of the matter is the vast majority of my colleagues look just like me. They look like cis white men. And because of that, it it is it is it's important for me. In fact, it's a calling for me to make sure that I'm I'm using that privilege that we share to try to teach them about all of the, the the wrongs that are incumbent upon that privilege. I love that
0: phrase. You were called to do this work. Sarah, do you feel called? And if so, who called you?
4: I do. I, you know, it's interesting, I think a lot of us who are LGBTQ at a young age, grapple with some really big existential questions, sort of, what is an authentic life? What is a meaningful life? How do those interplay with one another? In many ways, I found my love for politics in my own journey to self acceptance, because it was in reading the history books that. I saw that every chapter was, at the end of the day, the story of advocates, activists, and a handful of courageous elected officials broadening the circle of opportunity and deepening our understanding of we the people. And I found a lot of hope in that. And I found hope in the potential for politics to create more space for more people to live fully, freely, and authentically. You know, I think about the challenges that I've faced in my life. I think about my journey to coming out, I think about fighting for basic rights, I think about caring for my husband during his battle with with cancer, I think about how they were the most difficult things I had ever experienced, but they were still relatively easy compared to the experiences of so many other people. And I know that if you took away any one layer of support or privilege or opportunity that I have been granted in my life, if you took any one of any one of them away from me, I don't know that I would have been able to have gotten through. Any or all of those experiences. I feel called to, to try to pay it forward. We can't eliminate all loss or pain, but what we can do as elected officials is we can make life a little bit easier for people when hard times hit. I know how much of a difference that support meant for me. And if we can do more for them, then I think here in Delaware will more fully live up to our values as a state of neighbors.
0: 10 years from now, what does living a life out loud look like for the LGBTQ community?
5: Wow. I spend a lot of time talking to college students about about being LGBT. And I often say, we're so much more than LGBT. And what I hope is that in 10 years, even more of, of all of our collective identities are respected and protected and given the opportunity to shine. Imagine taking all of just the art, for example, that queer people have created in the last year, taking it away, just re- removing it from our cultural lexicon. How much of a void that would create. Now imagine the opposite. Imagine allowing all of that queer art to expand tenfold because we're p- protecting and respecting and recognizing even more of our, our sort of wonderful identities. I, I think of a very colorful, very exciting, um, very supportive environment. Sarah?
4: I think it's a world of, of a blurring of the lines that allow all of us whether we identify as LGBTQ or not, to be more fully free of the constraints that gender and gender norms place on us. You know, I think that's one of the powerful components of of the LGBTQ movement is how much we as LGBTQ people in living authentically and pursuing our rights, um, how much we free everyone to live their gender more fully and freely and authentically. And my hope is in 10 years, we, we just create more space for more people to explore themselves. Ultimately, and I think this is well beyond 10 years from now, it's incredible to think about for all the work that we're doing right now, that there will be a trans kid going to school here in Wilmington, Delaware, or in Philadelphia, or in Altoona, Pennsylvania, or really anywhere in this country, that, that decades from now, there will be a trans kid who will learn about this history, about our work and our movement and our community in their history books, but who will never have to know what the progress of this moment feels like because they will never know anything different. And that is an incredible thing to think about as we put all of our energy into this work. While the work will never fully be over, while that journey toward equality and justice will always, will always be unfinished there will be trans kids who won't have to know what this feels like, who won't have to know what it's like to to have those origin stories that we talked about, to not have to know what that shame feels like, to not have to wonder whether their community will accept them or embrace them, to not have to fear that their identity and their dreams are mutually exclusive. And I think we're already starting to see that, that reality, that world come to fruition We've still got a long way to go. But once we have that world, think about the unleashed potential that all those LGBTQ people, including LGBTQ young people, will be able to pursue when not constrained by the stress, by the discrimination, by the marginalization around them.
0: That was so beautifully said. I have tears in my eyes. I have goosebumps on my arm. Wow. As you were talking, just thinking about my own life, and I'm very proud of you know what I've been able to accomplish and how I am trying to be a good steward of the platform that God has blessed me with. But my God, would I love a world where I could have just be. I could just
1: mm. be.
0: Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Sarah McBride, Brian Sims, thank you very, very much for your time, your wisdom, and your service. Because that world that you that you both described, you're helping to build it. And I, for one, am very, very grateful that you too, as well as uh, Richie Torres, that you guys are willing to put forth the effort and the work to try to help us all achieve it. Thank you very, very
5: much. Thank you so much for bringing us together. Truly, thank you, LZ, for making sure that other people understand why all of this is so important.
0: As a political junkie, I could talk to those six trailblazers all freaking day. And who knows? Maybe they'll be back for season two. Speaking of, on the next episode, which is our season one finale of Life Out Loud, We talk with Oscar winner Dustin Lance Black and his Olympian hubby Tom Daly about everything from how they met.
4: Lance didn't actually have the courage to to come over and ask me for my number. So he sent his assistant over to get my number. What?
0: To the decision to get married.
3: I think I'm gonna be incredibly curious about Tom till the day I die.
0: And wait till you hear what Tom does with his hands to relax.
4: I know, I know. It's terrible. Slap (laughs) me.
0: Life Out Loud with LZ Granderson is a production of ABC Audio, produced by Trevor Hastings. Thanks to senior producers Tony Morrison and Robert Cepeda. What's up, boys? Associate producers are David Toledo and Madeline Wood. The executive producers of Life Out Loud are Eric Johnson and Liz Alessi. Special thanks to Mark Anthony Harris Gardner, John Howarth, Kieran McGurl, Elena Genevieve picard Joel Lyons, Jonathan Fagg, Joyita Bizras and the Pride ABC and Own Television Station's Employee Resource Group. And a big shout-out to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Ariel Chester, Ali Yang, Hal Aranathiel, Brian Choi, and Stacia Dushishku. I'm LZ Granison. Girl, wasn't that good?